Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name is Brad. And I'm Sarah. And today we wanted to talk about something that we're not even 100 years separated from. We're going to talk about the women's suffrage movement and how it kind of culminates in, I guess, a showdown in Nashville. Yeah, I like the word showdown. Tennessee really becomes the forefront of the fight for voting for women. I guess to to get there, I first wanted to find a couple terms. For one thing, just the word suffrage. Suffrage just means the right to vote for an elected official. The women who considered themselves seeking the right to vote were called suffragettes. So we're going to start all the way at the beginning. In 1776, we're going to read some quotes from Abigail Adams. Wife of John Adams, one of the leading founding fathers and second president of the United States. And we figured, obviously... I would read for Abigail Adams and you'd read for John Adams. Of course. So this letter dated March 31st, 1776. This is in the midst of the push for independence from Britain. I love the way she starts it. She says, I wish you would ever write me a letter half as long as I write you. Because it's like, I write you so much, you get these short responses. What's new? But she also, she says, I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute. But such of you as wish to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more proper, tender, and endearing one of friend. Ooh. That's harsh. It doesn't. It doesn't sound like something like a revolutionary woman would say to her hu- mm-hmm. husband, but it's a, it's a really interesting quote. Yes. So John Adams on April fourteenth of seventeen seventy six replies with this: "As to your extraordinary code of laws, I cannot but laugh. We have been told our struggle has loosened the bonds of government everywhere. That children and apprentices were disobedient." that schools and colleges were grown turbulent, that Indians slighted their guardians, and Negroes grew insolent to their masters. But your letter was the first intimation that another tribe, more numerous and more powerful than all the rest, were grown discontent. This is rather too coarse a compliment, but you are so saucy, I won't blot it out. And then her response back on May 7th, 1776, I cannot say that I think you were very generous to the ladies, for whilst you were proclaiming peace and goodwill to men, emancipating all nations, you insist upon retaining an absolute power over wives. We have it in our power, not only to free ourselves, but to subdue our masters and without violence, throw both your natural and legal authority at our feet. Wow. And I will have to say this, rereading this again And then reading the rhetoric of the suffragettes in, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, they're kind of almost repeating those exact same things. And of course, when the nation is put together, it actually was left up to the states to decide who actually got to vote. And some states actually allowed women the right to vote if they own property. Uh, But the last of those was New Jersey. And that ended in 1807. So we decided we would break the women's suffrage movement into three distinct eras. There was the antebellum era, the pre-Civil War era. There's the late 1800s kind of post-Civil War era. And then there's the early 1900s push towards the 19th Amendment. 
pre-Civil War, talking about the Seneca Falls Convention, which took place in 1848, one of the first times when women suffragettes from all over the country began to come together. It was really associated with the abolition, so the anti-slavery movement, and of course the temperance movement, the anti-alcohol movement. Mm -hmm. Women oftentimes push for temperance or prohibition, and it's easy just to think like, oh, they were being a buzzkill or whatever, but oftentimes it was tied up with the fact that women had no legal recourse against husbands who were alcoholics. You know, they could squander all of their money and they couldn't leave them. Or if they did, they would just be out in the cold. Yes, or in like the abuse that sometimes comes with that alcohol. In 1840, there was a World Anti-Slavery Convention held, and it was in London. There were certain women who wished to attend this convention, but were not allowed on account of the fact that they were women. The two most notable of which were Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And just to clarify too, those are probably two out of the most influential women that push for women's suffrage pre-Civil War and kind of a little bit post-Civil War as well. They, along with other like-minded women, called for a convention in Seneca Falls, New York, to discuss the social, civil, and religious conditions and rights of women. Actually, quite a few, around 200 women and 40 men attended, uh, including Frederick Douglass, the notable African-American abolitionist. They put out a declaration of sentiments and grievances, which began... We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal. Those are the exact same words that come with the Declaration of Independence, except you added and women. They voted on 12 resolutions, which included a call for woman suffrage. Unfortunately, this convention was largely the subject of public ridicule, but I think that's oftentimes the case for protests or equality pushes in their day and age. They're not thought of seriously until later on, but really the big thing that this did is it pushed certain figures into the national spotlight, specifically Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and after this, you have maybe the most famous name, the most famous female abolitionist, Susan B. Anthony. But then again, the Civil War starts, and at this point in time, women's suffrage kind of gets put on hold. The argument resumed immediately after the war because we started talking immediately through the reconstruction era of amending the constitution and a lot of them thought okay now is our time we're going to push for these amendments to include equality and the right to vote for African Americans and for women. And of course, that doesn't end up being what happens. In 1868, 14th Amendment, of course, passes and that gives African Americans citizenship. And then just two years later in 1870, the 15th Amendment, which grants right to vote for all men. And it's not to diminish the importance of those things, but a lot of the female exactly. leaders of the suffrage movement thought that was their chance to get included as well, and they didn't. And you really see in this kind of second era, the post-Civil War era, almost a renewed sense of, okay, now is our time to push for this. And you see different organizations formed, specifically the National Women's Suffrage Association and the American Women's Suffrage Association. Women are starting actually to get involved with politics on a little bit more of a direct basis because in 1872, the first woman actually ran for president. Her name was Victoria Woodhull. Now, she doesn't actually qualify to become president because she's not yet 35. Right. But just a few years later in 1884, there was another woman named Belva Ann Lockwood who ran for president. And again, unfortunately, this was ridiculed. And since women didn't have the right to vote, she didn't get much notoriety for it, at least in a positive way. But she still got 4,100 votes, right. which is quite impressive, honestly. Because I've seen those political cartoons about her and they really aren't very flattering in the slightest. No. So unfortunately, Belva doesn't get to be president, but 
you do see that we are kind of gaining steam as we get, as we go towards the 20th century. In fact, by the year 1900, there were a handful of states that had already allowed women the right to vote, specifically Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, and Idaho. Also, um, a numerous other states at this point in time are getting women just some voting rights. They're not being full-fledged voters yet, but they're starting to get the right to vote in primaries or school board elections. But then again, there's another war and the U.S. <laughs> enters World War One. Yeah, it's interesting to see that in this war, many women decide not to allow this war to put suffrage on the back burner. Yes, unlike the Civil War, they actually gain momentum, it feels, during World War One, mm -hmm. And they are often kind of criticized for this. One of the most interesting things is actually in 1917, so again, the same year that the U.S. enters World War One, women suffragettes begin to picket in front of the White House. Hundreds of them. And hundreds of them are actually arrested and sent to jail. Basically just for disrupting the peace. I mean, they were just peacefully protesting in front of the White House. And since we're at war, this was thought of as a heinous thing to do. Like, how could you not support your country? And so many of them were arrested. While in jail, many of them actually decided to go on hunger strikes to bring attention to the cause. This resulted in many of them being force-fed and mistreated. But in some ways, it actually works. Yeah, because by 1918, they're released because their arrests are ruled unconstitutional. And they now actually have support of the president. Woodrow Wilson officially kind of declares his support for the women's suffrage movement. And that's also the year 1918 is when not for the first time, but for the most notable time, an amendment was put forward that would grant women suffrage. It doesn't pass through Congress. It failed in the Senate by just two votes, but it showed that there was gaining support for this among the politicians. And that it's possible. 1919 is when things start to happen pretty quickly. On May 21st, 1919, the U.S. House of Representatives votes on what becomes known as the Susan B. Anthony Amendment, which passed with the two-thirds majority and by June, it passes in the U.S. Senate. So the amendment is then put before the states. And again, they need 36 states in order to officially be added on to the Constitution. And certain states start ratifying really quickly. Within, within a week, the 19th Amendment had been ratified by Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Later that summer, Kansas, Ohio, and New York ratify. And by March of 1920, 35 states had ratified the amendment. But eight states had already voted against it. And only five states had yet to vote, including Tennessee. It kind of gets labeled as the perfect 36. That was kind of the suffragettes goal. The last state to ratify it would be considered that perfect 36. If Tennessee doesn't ratify, then there's a really good chance that this doesn't happen. And who knows how many years it would then take for this amendment to be ratified. And so the battle for women's suffrage kind of makes it to the streets of Nashville at this point. What's really interesting is that this debate in Nashville is largely held between college educated women on both sides. I feel like at this point in time, men have already picked their side yeah, that's a good and point, good point. have taken out of been taken out of the conversation. So it's really now women fighting against women. And you almost get this sense that a lot of politicians are almost like just kind of sitting back and like waiting to see which way the, the wind blows and then they'll kind of jump into whichever oh, side they think is going to win. Yeah, most certainly. It becomes known as the War of Roses, mainly because how people literally identified themselves on the street was to wear roses. If you were pro-suffrage, 
you wore a yellow rose. If you were anti-suffrage, you wore a red rose. And some of the leading figures in this, the, on the pro-suffrage side, was a woman named Anne Dallas Dudley, who lived in Nashville. She was involved in the temperance movement, which led her to believe that women should have more of a voice in politics. She led the Nashville Equal Rights Suffrage League, and then the Tennessee Equal Suffrage League, and was then vice president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. She was known for leading, her and her children would lead May Day suffrage parades in Nashville. And one quote that I have from her, she said, I have never yet met a man or woman who denied that taxation without representation is tyranny. I have never yet seen one who was such a traitor to our form of government that he did not believe that the government rests upon the consent of the governed. This is a government of, for, and by the people, and only the law denies that women are people. And it's like this really interesting character, I feel too, because Southern suffragettes were so much different than Northern suffragettes. And another person, Carrie Chapman Catt, or Miss Cat, as people oftentimes called her, was the face of women's suffrage at this point in time. She was the chosen successor of Susan B. Anthony to lead the National American Women's Suffrage Association. And so she's kind of this national figure. And of course, she goes to Nashville for the War of the Roses. Yes. And with, of course, the pro side comes the anti-suffragettes. Probably the most noble one in Tennessee is Josephine A. Pearson. And I think what's really interesting about Pearson, which we wouldn't expect today, is that she actually held a master's degree in education. And she was very well learned and she worked as a lobbyist. But she starts a couple of different leagues, and I think the greatest name for an anti-suffragette league is the Southern Women's League for the Rejection of the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. What do you do if once you reject the amendment? What do you what do you continue to gather as that group and you can't really pick something else to do? Yes, I don't know. But both of these sides were headquartered at the Hermitage Hotel, and they picked that because that was where many of the state general assembly, meaning state senators and representatives, would stay or just kind of hang out at the bar. And so they knew they'd, they'd catch the ear of a lot of these individuals if they headquartered at the Hermitage Hotel. Much of what they do is they, they talk to people, they give speeches, but they also hand out leaflets. Honestly, for me, the side that was more interesting to research was the anti-suffrage side. Because what's kind of weird about them is they actually have like legitimate arguments. Not that I would agree with them, but they're not just, just saying like, women shouldn't vote. They have like these kind of weird, almost twisted arguments. Like they have some arguments that while I disagree with, we live in a country where you're allowed to think that. One of the things, one of the brochures that they handed out was called Why We Oppose Votes for Women. Some of the points they said were women are not suffering from any injustice, which giving them the ballot would rectify. And we believe the men of the state capable of conducting the government for the benefit of both men and women, their interests, generally speaking, being the same. Which is something that many of the Southern anti-suffragettes were really adamant about. I think this one quote was like, our fathers, our brothers, our husbands, and our sons are voting for us. Our brothers and our fathers love us. We choose our husbands and our sons are what we make them. Now that does presume that all women do have men in their lives that they want to represent them. Slash all men are always going to represent women in the best way. Right. So it's like, I disagree with that, but I see your point and you're allowed to think that. But then they have other things that are just gross. Like it's just, it's, it's fear mongering and it's racist fear mongering as well. The leaflet that they handed out that to me spoke the most clearly 
to what they were willing to say to get their point across was entitled The Truth About the Negro Problem. It begins by saying, For the sake of Southern civilization, for the sake of womanhood, for the sake of the welfare of the Negro race, as well as the white race, the Susan B. Anthony Amendment should be defeated. Nowhere on earth have two races lived in the same territory with such harmony as has always existed between Southern whites and Negroes. Which is absurd because this is at the height of the Jim Crow era. So they weren't existing in harmony, obviously. They were segregated at this point. It's also kind of sickening that this is actually one of the anti-19th Amendment things, is that by allowing women the right to vote, that now African Americans are going to start outnumbering whites, and that they're afraid that they're going to start, you know, electing their own leaders. There's one quote about how the better class of Negroes themselves know that they are better represented by able white men than they would be by designing politicians of their own race, just as the majority of the women themselves feel they are better represented by the fathers of their children than they would be by politically ambitious office seekers of their own sex. They even go as far as to say, if they allow women's suffrage, it will lead to a race war and race wars in all capital letters. It's getting pretty ugly with both of these sides, you know, throwing these arguments at each other. And actually get so bad that Ann Dallas Studley, in the end of July, sends a telegram to the governor of Tennessee at the time and basically is saying like, this stuff is getting so shameful. We are so embarrassed by how ugly this is getting you need to call it for a vote because we just need to end this. And the Tennessee State Senate voted on ratification on August 13th, and they approved it pretty rapidly. But things got hung up in the state House of Representatives. Using the roses on the lapels of the legislators, they realized that the vote was going to be tied at 48-48 since there were currently 96 representatives present. On August 18th, 1920, the final vote was called. And everyone believed at this point in time that it would not pass. So as the votes began to call out, something happens. One representative is a 24-year-old Republican from East Tennessee. His name was Harry Byrne. He had a red rose on his lapel, which means he was opposed to suffrage. As they were calling the votes, they get to his name and sources say that when they called out his name, he almost in a look of panic just blurts out I instead of nay. He, he votes out yes instead of no. But nobody was expecting it. He runs away. He literally is so terrified. He runs away. Because immediately the gallery, like the people present, start protesting and shouting, thinking he made a mistake. So he just panics and books it out of there. Yes. I read one account that basically said he ran out the window and walked in the ledge, but I honestly find that highly unlikely. I <laughs> believe it. He climbed out the window, scurried up the ledge, and he hid in the attic of the state senate, according to some sources, until the like the rioting had calmed. And everyone began to wonder, why did this young guy change his vote? Well, not only change his vote, but change history, really, because like his That's vote true. is what like Tennessee passing this is what made this amendment go through. What comes out is that that morning, Harry had received a note from his mother, whose name was Phoebe Byrne, known by her loved one as Miss Feb. In this note, she said. Hurrah and vote for suffrage. Don't keep them in doubt. I noticed some of the speeches against. They were bitter. I have been watching to see how you stood, but have not noticed anything yet. And she ends this by referencing Carrie Chapman Cat, and she says, Be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat put the rat in ratification. <laughs> So he does do that. And the next day, people were wondering about why he would change his vote. And he literally says it's because of his mother. He said, 
I want to state that I changed my vote in favor of ratification first because I believe in full suffrage as a right. Secondly, I believe we had a moral and legal right to ratify. Thirdly, probably the most important one, I knew that a mother's advice is always safest for a boy to follow, and my mother wanted me to vote for ratification. <laughs> so the 19th Amendment was ratified. That November, more than 8 million women vote in the election. Interesting enough, though, there were a few southern states, one actually including Mississippi, who don't allow women to vote in that election, despite the fact that it is now an amendment to the Constitution. But lots of women do vote. Mm -hmm. Including Miss Annie Stone. And we just stumbled across this in the newspaper. But she was 101 years old in 1920. She registered to vote in Nashville. The quote about her is she was at the home for the aged men and women where she is an inmate. The centenarian expressed a lively interest in the national campaign. Yeah. She, you know, she wanted to vote before she died. And I guess at 101 years old, she did it as soon as possible. She earned it, yeah. A monument was put up not that long ago at, in Centennial Park in Nashville commemorating women's suffrage. And there's five female figures in the monument, including Anne Dallas Dudley and Carrie Chapman Catt. I mean, this is what, like, we've now gone from 1776 to 1920. But officially, the right for women to vote doesn't really end actually until 1984. Because there are a few states in the deep south who don't ratify that for a long time actually some of them not till the 1950s 1970s the last one being mississippi in 1984 so that's kind of the end of the story about how this like this showdown occurs in nashville and tendency being the decisive vote but i learned a lot in this i learned a lot too this was so much fun it was and just like always you can find us at carter house in carnton we're there most days out of the week it's a full-time job and if you do want to support us always feel free to go online order something from the online bookstore that we have at store.boft.org or you know <laughs> get a membership we uh recently have put out a new edition of our newsletter and if you order um, a membership you get those delivered to your house mm -hmm. and so brown and i are the editors and as always uh follow us on facebook and instagram on instagram you can find us at boft1864 we're going to put up some uh information about this and don't forget to subscribe if you enjoy this content uh subscribe on various different podcast applications and don't miss this we put out episodes every other week so thank you so much for listening